0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day you may be hearing this. It is evening here, and normally I uh, try not to do these particular Bible Bites um, late in the day like this, but it just has worked, that out, worked out that way uh, this particular day. And I did find so much meat in these chapters, I really didn't want to push it off into tomorrow and try to do the two uh, days' worth at one time. Today, my reading in episode 233 of our Bible Bites is found in Jeremiah chapter 32 through 34, and I have got seven and a half pages of notes on that (laughs) handwritten notes that I've sat here and uh, really dug in and gone through. So obviously I'm not going to be able to do anything but skim some highlights with you in this shorter message. So I'll try not to um, belabor it too much, but there is so much richness in this and I'm sure I will be bringing these out in other studies and other messages at another time. Now, Jeremiah chapter 32 through 34 has a lot of connection in the sense of a united topic. Um, First of all, let's look at the timing of this. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, we notice that the time period that, that Jeremiah tells us about this is about 17 years after chapter 25, And about 10 years after chapter 28, based on the number of the years of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign and so forth that he gives us. So we can determine that this is um, pretty close, very close to the time of the Babylonians coming in and destroying Jerusalem and taking it captive. We know here that the Babylonians are besieging Jerusalem. They will capture it within another couple of years. Uh, but at this point in Jeremiah 32, they're still in the uh, just besieging it at this point. Zedekiah had been appointed king of Judah, uh, but he didn't like Jeremiah's prophetic words that he was giving because Jeremiah was telling him the truth, not what he wanted to hear. And so he had him put in prison. So this chapter um, these some of these chapters here come from Jeremiah's time in prison. Reminds me, of course, of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, who wrote a bunch of things from prison as well. But the main ju- the main thrust of chapter thirty three is this deal where Jeremiah has a. The Lord tells him, he says, you've got a family member that's coming and he's going to present you with this idea that you need to buy his property. And so God says, buy the property. Okay. Plain and simple. God gives him the direction. So it happens. You know, his uh, relative comes, his uncle, it says in my translation, comes and he says in verse seven, buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Welcome as you join in. He says, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Now that's more than we can get into here. But I do want to just reference Leviticus chapter 25 verses um, 25 through 28 is what's referred to here. This is the right of redemption. It was the right law from Leviticus chapter 25, uh, verses 25 through 28 and 51 through 52. And so what that's dealing with is if if someone had to sell their property, they got indebted or whatever, and they had to get rid of their property, then there, there was a way that God provided for it to stay within the family. And so there was a next of kin that could redeemed that property for them. And so the amount that was um, used as the redemption price for purchasing the property depended upon the number of years remaining toward the Jubilee year and all of that. So that ties in with what we're told here. We're even given that that they weighed out the money. It was 17 shekels of silver. Um, and that refers to the amount that that they calculated based upon the number of years remaining until Jubilee and so forth. So all of that is back found into the, the uh, Torah. But this is another, the point that I want to bring out about it, is that this is another object lesson regarding Israel. God is showing through an object lesson to Jeremiah something pertaining to his people, Israel so just like and this is this is beautiful just like jeremiah is to redeem his family's land from being sold or lost so god is saying i will redeem this land of my people again The judgment that they were headed for with the Babylonian captivity was certain. They were going. God had already said, and he never changed his mind, it was going to be 70 years. They'd be there. It was certain. But what God is saying here is it's not permanent. I'm going to redeem this land again. I'm going to turn this thing around. And so it's a beautiful picture of redemption here with him buying this property. Hallelujah, and so God is using that to um, to symbolize what He's going to do. I noticed that also. There's some uh, information here about the deeds. One of them is sealed, and one uh, that's the purchase deed. It says, and then there's another deed document that is an open one, and it just reminded me of Zechariah five and Revelation five, uh, where we have another deed, another sealed document, referred to that seven sealed scroll in Revelation, etc. And he's told to put them, or he tells Baruch, uh, his aide, to put them in an earthen vessel and keep them. And the reason is the promise is going to be that there'll be a redemption of the land. So you're going to keep it because it's going to come to pass later. And so um, God was promising to redeem the land. Now, Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 32, and technically all the way through chapter 34, in in essence, you can see this um, this happening where Jeremiah has prayed. Jeremiah prays to the Lord, and then the Lord answers him. And I had really never seen this prior to reading this today, even though I've read this several times in the past, of course. But I had never seen this particular aspect of it. Jeremiah goes to him. Okay, Jeremiah has purchased this land, this Anathoth property that God told him, you know, he needed to redeem for his family. And God was showing that it was what he was going to do for Israel. But then Jeremiah goes to him and he says, okay, I want to read a a couple of spots from this. He says in verse uh, 11, I mean, no, I'm sorry, in verse 17 of Jeremiah 32, the end of that verse, he says, he's extolling God's greatness. And he says, there is nothing too hard for you. And then he goes on and he talks about how he is the great, the mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts. And so he goes on and he extols. Well, then he goes down in verse 24 and he begins to talk about the condition now. And he says, look, the siege mounds. They've come to the city to take it. The city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it. And he goes on down. And in essence, he says, and you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. I had never seen that before. And so God, however, didn't beat." God knew exactly what the problem was. And so he begins to answer Jeremiah. And notice this. It says in verse 26, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? In other words, he was picking up on the fact that Jeremiah had just a few verses earlier extolled how there is nothing too hard for you, God. But then he goes on and later, right before he ends his prayer and he says, but why in the world did you tell me to buy this land if the city is going to be desolate? The, we're going off to captivity and, you know, the the land is going to be desolate. Why am I doing this? You know, so what God was picking up on, what the Lord showed me today, I think, is that Jeremiah was struggling with doubt In other words, we can sometimes proclaim something. We might even sing it in a song or whatever, and and it be true of God. And we know it's true in our head, but do we really believe it from down deep inside? And I think Jeremiah was in that situation where he knew there's nothing too hard for you, God, but yet did he really believe it? And I think that's what God was getting to. He was like, Jeremiah, do you really believe? That there's nothing too hard for me. Is there anything too hard for me? So I think he was honing in on the fact that Jeremiah knew the truth, but he wasn't really believing it. He was struggling, I think, with doubt. And that really spoke to me um, earlier. It's it's neat when you look at the prayers in Scripture and you see the words that the the people say, and then you see God's response and how it's just so, so um, He just answers the need in that moment, and he gets right to the point, and it's just a beautiful thing. So I love it. And then he goes on, and he starts talking about, yes, they're going to go into captivity, but I'm going to redeem the land. I'm going to bring them back. They're going to build again here, and there'll be vineyards, and there'll be the voice of the bride and the bridegroom again in this place. And all of those things he continues to speak about here It's beautiful when you go through this and you see that. Hallelujah. And God is the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. So he knew Jeremiah better even than Jeremiah knew himself. Hallelujah. Here again in verse 33 of this chapter, of chapter 32, he says, um, he's talking, God is talking about the people and he says, they turned to me the back and not the face. Though I taught them rising up, Early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. So God is here again proving over and over and over how He's gone to great lengths to reach the people and to teach them and to, to um, minister to them and turn them back. But they turn to him the back and not the face. And and I just we gotta be careful of that. We don't need to turn our backs on God and refuse him him. And that's what God is saying that they have done. Then you go on down to verse 38. Here's where he's promising to bring them back. He says, as a matter of fact, in the latter part of verse 37, I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people and I will be their God. We talked a little bit about that yesterday as well. When you see that phrase, it's talking about relationship. It's talking about covenant, family, relationship. They will be my people and I will be their God in relationship is what he's meaning there. Then he says, then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And this is referring us to the new covenant that we looked at yesterday in Jeremiah chapter 31 as well. That one heart and one way. And of course, we know in the New Testament, Jesus is the way. And so that's all telling us about um, Jesus, and it's all pointing us to Christ who was to come. And then he says in verse 42. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. Yes, he had to discipline them. Yes, he had to punish them for their great and grievous sins against him that were unrepentant and they were unwilling to repent. And so God finally has a day when a window of opportunity for repentance closes and his judgment will come. And that's true again. That's going to be true again in our day in uh, not too long from now when the final judgment that God has predicted and prophesied over the world is going to come to pass. But I love how he he says for his people, he says, I'm still going to bring on them all the good that I've promised them. In other words, even though they were going through that judgment, it was not going to be permanent. God saw his children. He remembered his covenant and he would see to their good in the end hallelujah praise God then he goes on um, in verse in chapter 33 he's continuing God is continuing to answer Jeremiah more and more about this and reaffirming his covenant to them he says um, he says in verse, 6 of chapter 33, behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. He says in verse 7, and I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. And then if you go down to verse uh, 11, he says the same thing. For I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord And what that's speaking of is restoration. God is going to bring them back, and they're going to be restored. Our God is a God that is a restorer. He will bring us back and restore us back like it was before. We went through any tragedy or whatever, and sometimes it's even better than before. Praise be to God. But it also reminded me prophetically of Um, Acts chapter 3 verse 21. And the uh, I believe it's Peter, if I'm not mistaken. There is speaking, and he says that uh, God, that the heavens had to receive Jesus until the restitution of all things, and that's talking about the same thing. God is in the process now. Jesus is in heaven right now, but he's coming back soon. And when he comes back soon, he's going to restore and reconstitute everything back to its original state. And that's one of the reasons I like to think of Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 as bookends of the Bible because the what was true in Genesis 1 and 2, the original state of eternity with God, fellowship with God, relationship with God, is what we see being restored. Jesus is going to come back soon and restore everything As at the first, everything back to its original state. Hallelujah. In verse 14 again, the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And beloved, I just want to point out to you as well, whatever you are, wherever you are going, whatever you are going through and uh, wherever you are in your journey with the Lord, When God promises you something, he will bring it to pass. It may not happen in our particular time frame. He has his own timing for when things are to work out. In its season, it will come to pass. But he will never forget it. And it will not just die. That word will never die. It will be true and he will sustain it and he will bring it to pass. Hallelujah. And then when we go over to uh, chapter thirty-four, the main thing that I wanted to point out to you over here in chapter thirty-four is that in beginning in verse eight, we have a word that came um, to Jeremiah from the Lord, but it was after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people. Now remember. King Zedekiah wasn't a great king, but he was in the office of the king. And apparently, if you keep reading this chapter, God led him and God was directing him in some way to do this covenant because God wanted the captives and the slaves to be set free. And so he makes this covenant and he tells everybody, you got to free your male and your female slaves. And it was part of the Jewish law that they do that at the Sabbath cycle of years. So this may have been at the Sabbath cycle of the year in this time when God moved upon Zedekiah's heart to have them do this. And so he tells them, you got to set the slaves free. So they do that. Many of them do that. But then they change their mind and they go. Hmm, who's going to work my land and who's going to, you know, do this and who's going to do that for me? So they go get them back and they go retrieve them. Well, that angered the Lord. It angered the Lord. And I want you to see why. In um, verse, he goes on down and he says uh, in verse 15, Then you recently turned, now God is speaking here, then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. So he's saying you did good when you let them go. But then read verse 16, then you turned around and profaned my name. And every one of you brought back his male and, slave, and female slaves whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection to be your male and, and female slaves. And so it angered the Lord. And the reason is because he defined it here. He said that that by doing that, they profaned his name. And if you'll remember, commandment number three of the ten We're given in Exodus chapter 30 is speaking about not taking God's name in vain and not profaning his name. And so I just want to leave you with this thought. We don't realize how how important it is. For us to live lives, if we claim to be a Christian and we are God's people, we wear his name no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter what we're we're, um, involved in, we are wearing his name. And it's important that we recognize the privilege, but also the responsibility that we bear in carrying his name forward in the right way. So, in other words, what happened here is that because they had reneged on their promise, they had brought dishonor to the name of the ultimate promise keeper, God in heaven, who will not renege on his promises. So, he's equating profaning his name with dishonoring his name and making people think that he is he's not who he says he is because we're not being who we should be because we're wearing his name. So when when we have the name of Christ, the, the New Testament talks about us being called Christians ever since the days of Antioch. We were named in that. And if you listen to that and look it up and so forth, you can see even C.S. Lewis is quoted from Mere Christianity that he said this, that that can be understood to be little Christs. So everywhere we go, we carry his name. And that means we should bear his honor. We should bring honor to his name so that whatever he is like is what we are like in that situation. And so God was angry with them because he is a promise keeper. When he says something, he will do it, and he will not renege on his promises. So when they did that, they dishonored his name, and he says they profaned it. So I guess the point I'm making is, If you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, recognize that you also are bearing his name. And even though none of us are perfect, we cannot do this perfectly, I encourage us all to strive to bear God's name with honor and try to do what he would do and say what he would say and treat people how he would treat them so that we bring honor to his name. And not shame or reproach to it. We need to get back to the days where we care about the honor of the name of the Lord that we bear. And so I leave that with you. I hope that this has been a blessing to you. That the Lord has spoken to you in some way. And Lord willing we will continue our Bible Bites each day as we read through the scriptures. And I hope you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you tonight in Jesus name.